Turn with me in your Bibles this morning as we continue in worship of the Lord to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be continuing our walk through the Gospel of Matthew, specifically looking at Matthew chapter 23 as we've been the last few weeks, looking at the false teachers of Israel, what made them so false, and more importantly, what made it so dangerous to follow them as guides, as leaders. As we've been considering this text, it's important to remember that we have here within First Baptist, and undoubtedly many of you have friends who have been trapped in abusive churches under the ministry of abusive spiritual teachers who did not hold high the word of the Lord. Maybe some of you, as you're sitting here listening this morning, you can relate to, you can identify with some of the hardships and the heartaches that have come about as a result of trusting in someone who elevated himself or his own opinion above that of Christ. In the Word of God, there is no one more celebrated than the individual who faithfully and humbly holds high the Word of God and accurately represents the Lord to his people. And simultaneously, there is no one more condemned, no one more damned than the individual who claims to represent the true God and yet falsely represents him. And Jesus makes that very, very specific and very, very clear here in Matthew chapter 23. So as we continue our way through the text, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 16 to 22. We'll read the word, and then we'll pray, and, and then we'll get to work. Matthew 23:16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift of, by, by the gold of the temple, then he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater? The gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it And by him who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. We thank you so much, Lord, for the wonderful time that we enjoyed this last week with your children, your people, Lord. We thank you so much, Father, for the opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross with them. Lord, as we shared that word this last week, we pray, Father, that the seed that was planted will continue to be watered by your Spirit, and that you, most gracious Heavenly Father, will continue to work to draw these little ones into a saving relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we gather here this morning as your people, as we go from this place later in the day as your people, that we would represent you accurately, that we would hold your son high, and that what Jesus says would be the truth that guides us more than any personal opinion or personal belief that we might hold, which is not firmly rooted and grounded in your word. We pray, God, this morning that as we look at what Jesus says about these blind guides, these Pharisees, that you would give us enlightenment and that you would illuminate us, Father, as to the true guide, your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was six years old, 
I was in grade one, and I recall very clearly, very distinctly, one particular afternoon that our grade one teacher took all of us out onto the playground to play a rousing game. She divided the class into two teams, and on each team, she then counted us off, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. The ones were going to wear a blindfold. The twos were going to be the guides. These two teams would compete running an obstacle course, which involved going across a volleyball sand pit under a volleyball net across what had to be a 30-year-old splintered picnic table onto a playground, across a playscape, through a tunnel that was built into the playscape, one of those concrete sort of uh, sewage, sewage tunnels that you cover over with dirt, and then back around to the starting line. I was chosen mercifully to be a guide and not blind. I don't think it turned out so well for the girl that I was assigned to lead. And immediately as the, as the teacher said, on your marks, get ready, get set, go, we took off. And I was the first one out there. And there's one thing you need to understand about most six-year-old little boys and this six-year-old little boy in particular Whatever game we're playing, I'm going to win. And I only care about winning. There was a lot of instruction given to us in terms of how we should guide our blind person. Maybe there was, and I just didn't care. I don't recall at this point. It's sort of a fuzzy memory. But I can remember racing across that, that uh, volleyball sand pit, holding the girl's hand. She's blind. I'm running. All of a sudden, she got really heavy, and I turned around, and she wasn't running anymore. She had fallen in the sand, and I was dragging her. So I just kept dragging her. I was like, get up, get up. And she was not happy, and I, I didn't know what the problem was. Somehow she managed to stumble to her feet. I dipped under the net. She didn't make the dip. She clotheslined herself. I turned around. She started to cry. I said, you can't cry. We've just started. We've just started. She got up. I looked across the distance. My grade one teacher was running at us. And I thought, yes, she's coming to cheer us on. So I took off again, pulling this poor little girl behind me. We went over the picnic table. I got over it just fine. I looked back. Her knees were bleeding. I'm not sure what happened. We got across the playscape. We came to the concrete tunnel. Our teacher was just about there, and I went under the tunnel. And fortunately, my friend, my classmate, the girl who sat next to me in my grade one class, didn't make the duck into the tunnel and smacked her head right on the top of that concrete cinder tube. And that was the end of the game. This much I can say, we were in the lead when the game was called off. <laughs> this poor girl, we're not, we're not really friends anymore. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why. Um, sometimes in life, you don't necessarily want to follow the guy that is only concerned with himself. You don't necessarily want to follow the eager and enthusiastic one who just wants to win at all costs. That isn't necessarily the person you want to follow, and especially you don't want to follow that person if you're being asked to wear a blindfold in the midst of it. I had that memory brought back to my attention this week as we were, asked, we were asking the kids in VBS to run this obstacle course. There was this one point in which we had to blindfold them and, and guide them. And I just want you to know, as a grown 36-year-old pastor, I've learned my lesson. None of my children were hurt badly on the, uh, on the obstacle course this week. So 
badly. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. We got through it fine. There were no significant injuries. Um, <laughs> as we come to the Word of God this morning, we encounter, we're encountering Jesus' admonition of the scribes and the Pharisees. The denunciation that he makes about them is that they are blind guides. He reuses that expression, blind, three separate occasions in this particular text. And this is coming at the end of multiple passages that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks in which he has said, you do everything for show. You want to be the guys that are applauded. You want to be the guys that are celebrated. You're hypocrites. You put on a face. You want to look good, but on the inside, you're not good. He, he talks about the fact that they, um, they, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces as a result of their own teaching, as a result of their own ideas. They are eager to win converts, but not converts to Jesus, not converts to Yahweh, converts to their own ideology. And now here in verse 16, Jesus is going to start calling them for what they are. They are blind guides, which means we should not follow them. And as we approach the text this morning, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it about them, number one, that makes them so blind? What is it about them that makes them so blind? And what is it about their blindness that makes them so dangerous? Look with me, verse 16. Jesus begins with his denunciation. He's begun already with this, but he repeats it. He says, woe to you. This is a statement of God's judgment. He says, woe to you. First time he mentions it, blind guides. How is it that they're blind? Namely, he's going to begin to criticize their false reasoning, their faulty logic. He says, you guys say, verse 16, if anyone swears by the temple, the place where we go to worship, he says, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he is bound by his oath. So simple yes and a simple no is not what these guys are practicing. They're not letting their yes be yes. They're not letting their no be no. They're invoking a rather convoluted system of oaths, a fine print, if you will, in which if such and such happens, then they're bound. But if I don't say such and such, if I don't hold to such and such oath, then even though I said it, even though I made the commitment, I'm not actually bound by my words. It's sort of a theological fine print that they've come up with. And he mentions this on two separate occasions. Number one, they say if they swear by the gold of the temple, then they're bound, but not the temple. And he's going to criticize that false logic. And then in verse 18, he says, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, the thing upon which we sacrifice and give our offerings to the Lord, if anyone swears by the altar, then it is nothing. But if he swears by the gift that is on the altar, well, then he is bound. In both instances, Jesus is going to show that this is absolutely absurd. To the first, he says in verse 17, you blind fools for which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that makes the gold sacred? What is the big deal about the gold? What is so important about the gold? It would be nothing. It would just be ordinary gold, but it is special because of the fact that it adorns the temple. You say, if I swear by the temple, it's no big deal. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, then all of a sudden it's a big deal. But the temple is the thing which is important, not the gold which is on it. And they did the same thing with the altar. They said, well, if you swear by the altar, it's, it's no big deal. But if you swear by the offering on the altar, then it's a big deal. And Jesus employs the same sort of analysis of their flawed logic. He says, that doesn't make any sense. What is the big deal about the offering? 
It, it doesn't matter what the offering is. What makes the offering significant is the altar upon which the offering is made. We see this passage through 21st century eyes. And it is clearly, to our eyes, lunacy. I mean, the false logic, the false reasoning that is employed to get here is so readily apparent. We see it. Jesus points it out. It's obvious. Which begs the question, how did they come to a place? How did they come to a place to where they could say this sort of thing with a straight face and people would believe him? How does that happen? How do you get here? A situation undoubtedly would have unfolded in which they're in some sort of a worship service or a worship gathering. Perhaps they're in a prayer meeting somewhere. And one of these guys would have stood up and in order to appear pious and religious in front of everyone else gathered there, he would pray something along the lines of, Oh Lord, I promise to offer to you this type of sacrifice. And knowing that these individuals were not the most trustworthy, sensing their own hypocrisy, in order to be believed by those who were gathered around them, in order to elevate their reputation amongst those who were there, they knew that they needed to spice it up. A simple, I'm going to offer this, isn't going to work. So, I swear by the temple to offer it. And everyone in that prayer meeting or that worship service would clap their hands and say, he just swore to give such and such money, such and such offering to the Lord And he swore by the temple that he would do it. He must really mean his word. The only problem is that they would go from that meeting and this Pharisee or or this scribe would then begin to think to himself, I'd really rather not give that money. It was a good idea at the time, but here I am on a Monday morning, the day after, thinking about it, thinking about the commitment I made, and I don't know that I really want to follow through with that. So they would. And sooner or later, somebody would come up to them and say, hey, you made the commitment to give such and such to the Lord. You said it in a prayer meeting. You even swore by the temple that you were going to do this. To which then they would say, oh, but you see, I swore by the temple. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean? You sw- yeah, I know. I was there. You swore by the temple that you were going to give this. Yeah, the temple, friend, the temple. To which the unsuspecting, ordinary, everyday, plain Jane Jew would say, what, what are you getting at? Well, you see, if we swear by the temple, it's no big deal. It's the gold that makes it a big deal. You're free to change your mind if you just swear by the temple. But if you swear by the gold, well, there's no going back on that. The problem is that all throughout the Old Testament... Dozens of occasions, God has said over and over again, he is a God of his word. He doesn't change his mind. And blessed is the man who swears even to his own harm and yet will not change. God over and over and over again calls for simple truth-telling. He says that he is a truth-telling God and he has called for his people over and over and over again to be truth-telling people. But somehow they said this. And what's even more interesting is it was believed. 
Don't flip there, just listen. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus touches on something very, very similar to this. It's a little bit different, but there's a confrontation with the Pharisees in which they are challenging him about his Sabbath day observance and whether or not it's really up to code, whether or not it's really up to snuff. And they ask him why it is that he's teaching his disciples not to honor their Sabbath day rules and regulations. And Jesus' response to them is, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he gives an example. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Honor them. And, again, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, this is their teaching. You teach. If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is korban or given to God, he need not honor his father and his mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. On at least one point, we see where this hypocrisy has infiltrated not only their teaching regarding oaths, but other commandments as well are now being affected. You know your job is to look after your mom and dad. There's no, there's no CPP, Canada Pension Plan. There's no retirement. There's nothing like this. This is an agrarian culture. Part of the responsibilities, part of the obligations that are clearly taught in God's word is that sons and daughters should provide for their mothers and their fathers. But if the day comes, when the day comes that you're actually responsible financially for looking after your mom and your dad, if you go to them and you say, listen, what I would have used to support you, I can't use it to support you because I've promised it to God. I've promised it to the temple. To which any innocent bystander would looking around be listening very, very closely. Well, did you promise it by the temple or by the gold on the temple? The offering that you're going to give to the Lord, are you swearing to give that offering to the Lord by the altar or by your offering that you offer on the altar? It's a double standard. And see, here's the catch. If they're going to teach wiggle room with regards to God's word, if they're going to take what God's word plainly and clearly says in terms of how they're supposed to live their lives, and if they're going to create this wiggle room, this sort of gray area, you know it's because there is already compromise in their hearts. You see, preachers and teachers, guides who preach God's word, and you as well, For all of us, for all of humanity, we don't do well with internal spiritual inconsistency. We're always moving either more towards righteousness or we're always moving further away from righteousness. It is very difficult for anybody to know what is true and to hold on to what is a lie. It's like walking around with rocks in your shoes. It's just not comfortable. You can't, with your mouth, verbalize something that is true, that you know is true, while simultaneously in your life practicing something that is clearly contrary to what you're saying with your mouth. It's like walking around with rocks in your shoes, and there's only two things you can do to deal with that issue. Take your shoes off, empty the rocks that are out, or bore holes in your feet to make room for the rocks that are in your shoes. The Pharisees had one of two options available to them. 
with regards to making this commitment to offering this offering to the temple at whatever point they started saying this sort of thing, they could either follow through with their commitment, they could do what they said they were going to do, they could keep their word, they could deal with their sin issue in their heart, the greed that wanted them to refrain from giving their offering, or, or they could bore holes in their feet to create wiggle room, to create a space for this rock to create space for hypocrisy. So they can do one of two things, repent of the sin issue and deal with it appropriately, or two, begin to teach and preach wiggle room, space. And that's what we find. A blind guide is someone who can agree with you with regards to what the Bible says, what God clearly asks us to do. But you know he's blind when he takes the clear, obvious intention of God's word and he begins to question it, he begins to create a bunch of exceptions, a bunch of caveats, and a bunch of qualifications and eventually equivocations for why ultimately we don't need to do what the Lord has clearly commanded us to do. He believes that himself and what starts off as a lie in his heart eventually makes its way into the sermon manuscript where he's not preaching this anymore. He's preaching this. And what starts off in the preacher's heart, in the false guide's heart, in the Pharisee's heart, a lie that they choose to believe eventually works its way into the congregation's heart as well. I say, but isn't it possible for me to engage in some sort of compromise in my life, some form of idolatry, some form of unrepentant sin, and still go on with the Lord. We'll just make our peace with this one failure, but I can still come to him for leadership and guidance. I can still come to him for personal relationship, all the while knowing that I am willfully trying to insist upon wiggle room in my life. Isn't that possible? No. It's not. Ezekiel 14 makes it very clear. Dawn read the text this morning. You all heard it. God says that what happens is people take their idols, they take the things that they're worshiping, and they put them right before their face. And when they come to the Lord, when they come to inquire of the Lord, the only thing that the Lord is going to say to them is, what about that idol in your heart? What about that sin in your life? What about that compromise that you're indulging in? What about that wiggle room that you've created for yourself? I say, yes, Lord, but I really, I really want you to help me. I really want you to guide me. I need your guidance. I need your grace. I need your blessings. And God says the only thing he's going to talk to people about when they come to them, when they come to him holding their idols right in front of their face is the idol that they're holding right in front of their face. The only thing he's going to say to them, it says in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols. Let those things go. There's only one thing he has to speak about. There's only one issue he wants to address. He says, turn away from your idols. Turn away from all your abominations. Verse 10. He goes on to say, they shall bear their punishment. The individuals who like the idols right in front of their face, as well as the prophets who are counseling, the false prophets who are counseling these people. 
both, according to verse 10, become alike. Their punishment is the same. For the preacher who takes the idol into his heart, who creates wiggle room in his life so that he doesn't have to be faithful to God's word, it will ultimately impact the audience, the congregation. Because just as much as the preacher wants wiggle room in his heart, the congregation likes to hear wiggle room in the sermon. Many of you are familiar with um, Rob Bell. He's a so-called, quote-unquote, evangelical uh, pastor, authored a number of books. He is widely, at this point, condemned by many evangelicals as having strayed off into heresy at this point for his denial of hell. He's a founder of what we refer to as the emergent church movement, which basically takes a giant step back away from the knowability of Scripture and asks the question, how do we really know this thing is true? And insists on a bunch of wiggle room, a bunch of gray areas, where we're not really sure what the book is saying anymore. Do you know Rob Bell isn't the first to do this? And you don't have to go too far back in history to find others who followed the same trajectory. In the 1800s, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, an individual by the name of F.W. Robertson, he was the kind of preacher that people spoke about in superlatives. Charles Dickens made the comment about F.W. Robertson, quote, he was one of the greatest masters of elocution that I ever knew. This from Charles Dickens. To hear Robertson read the church prayers was in and of itself a sublime education. High praise coming from one of the preeminent authors of Britain during this time period. He was very popular in his day. Robertson was very popular in his day. And after his death, there were many volumes of his sermons that were sold, that were paraded around. Not everyone spoke highly of him. Charles Spurgeon was very fond of this quote. He didn't coin this, but he was fond of repeating it. He said, quote, Robertson believed that Christ did something or other, which somehow or other had some connection or other with salvation. That was his doctrine. Spurgeon loved quoting that. A term that I'd like to coin to describe this is elevated ambiguity. High-sounding rhetoric, soaring words that just sounded sweet to the ear, that were wonderful and pleasant to listen to. But at the end of the day, if you were actually going to say, Robertson, what are you saying? Nobody would really know. Now, don't take my word for it. Listen to one of his sermons for yourself. This he preached on Psalm 51, a psalm which deals with David's sin, his adultery with Bathsheba, in which he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He comes to the Lord. He repents. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. Listen to what Robertson preaches on this text. Quote, two sides of our mysterious twofold being are found here. Something in us near to hell, and something in us strangely near to God. This psalm, written 3,000 years ago, might have been written yesterday. It describes the vicissitudes of the spiritual life in an Englishman just as truly as that of a Jew. Conscience, when it is healthy, ever speaks thus, my transgression. We cannot help believing that our sentiments towards right and wrong are a reflection of God's sentiments towards right and wrong. 
that we call just and true, we cannot but think is just and true in his sight. I venture to say in true penitence, the idea of punishment never enters. If it did, it would be almost a relief. We would like to think that we would be punished for our sin, but all those moments in which a selfish act has appeared more hideous than any pain which the fancy of a Dante could devise. How does that sound to you guys? I don't even know that it's really all that high and sublime, really. But apparently, that's what they said. Spurgeon, again, was preferred. Robertson believed something or other about Christ or other that did something or other with salvation or other. What's interesting is in the last few years, if scholars have gone back to look at F.W. Robertson's work, he had a journal that he kept, but he kept it in code. He didn't want his family to know what he was writing in his journal. Of course, the code that he utilized in the 1800s is no match for modern-day cryptography. And one of the things that they discovered in his journal entry dated October 1st, 1849, he makes this statement, spent four hours in bed with Augusta yesterday. His wife's name was Ellen. As clear as they went through his journals that he was carrying on an illicit sexual affair with another woman. This journal entry made a full year before he preaches a sermon on Psalm 51, David's adultery with Bathsheba. And see, the preacher had indulged in a lie, and the lie was creating problems in his life. And rather than preaching the simple truth, he determined that it was best to allow for wiggle room. Blind guides. Blind guides. He is blind, but he is still guiding people. Though he never said anything concrete or definitive in his sermons, the masses of Britain, Englishmen, bought him, bought his sermons, they flew off the shelves, which bears witness to the fact that there's no market for a false guide unless people really love to have their itching ears scratched. The true problem here is that It's a cyclical, repeating thing. You come up with hypocrisy in your life. You know what God's word says. You know that the right thing to do is to follow the Lord, but you don't want to. So you teach wiggle room. You teach a gray space. You avoid definitive right and wrong. And what's fascinating is as you work to make your sermons more tolerant, you will find that the people listening to them find them agreeably more tolerable to bear themselves. If you preach for wiggle room, you will find in the audience people who like the room to wiggle. And so what has happened is the preacher has presented handles. What started off as him trying to do something to assuage his own conscience has now turned into handles that he offers which the people around him gladly gladly grab a hold of and drag him. 
So that what he started off thinking this might be a good thing to say, he now finds it is applauded. He finds that people like it, and now he's being pulled more and more and more towards it, such that it is a vicious cycle. The only reason why the Pharisees and the scribes have the status and the position and the honor and the glory is because there are people who like what they are teaching. So they are blind, and nevertheless, they are the guides that are preferred and desired. It is cyclical. All of us are prone to wander. All of us are tempted to find somebody who will preach to us not necessarily what the Word of God says, but we want it to sound pretty good and pretty close to what the Bible says but we want it to allow for us to do at the end of the day what we still really, truly, deeply desire to do. Which is why Jesus says that they are blind guides. They are blind and yet they are still guiding people. And he comes back and he closes off the passage. Look at me, verse 20. Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. He again reaffirms that which is true. Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The prescription to the problem is so profound. It starts off with indulging hypocrisy where you say, I know what the Bible says, but this is what I really want to do. And so you begin to compartmentalize. And eventually those rocks in your shoes start to take a precedence. They start to take a preference. You start to move that way. But Jesus comes back and he says, don't believe the lie that you can actually engage in compartmentalization where you can say one thing and secretly do another. There is no separating There is no compartmentalizing. You can't believe that in your heart and you can't say that about God who is the Lord of all of life. If you want to talk about the temple, that's fine. You're talking about the one who dwells in the temple. You want to talk about the altar, that's fine. You're talking about the ones who offer praise and worship to the one true God on that altar. And if you want to talk about heaven, that's fine. But just remember, you're talking about the one true God who lives in heaven. There is no dividing one from the other. There is no compartmentalizing one aspect of it from the other aspect of it. And if you're going to speak about any of it, you're speaking about all of it. And you're either speaking what is true or you are speaking what is false. Jesus' prescription is to not play their games of double standards, to not walk with them down the path towards wiggle room, but to say that there is no wiggle room. And that's the solution. Truth, sweet sounding to the ear from the words of Christ. As we come to a close this morning, it's important for us to remember, number one, The character of the pastor, the character of the preacher, the character of the guide matters just as much as what he says. Does he actually live out what he preaches? I say, I don't know, pastor, I'm pretty sure you're all right. Well, thank you. But let me me ask you this. What do we preach here at First Baptist? What is the thing which is central to us? It's the cross. It's the gospel. The reality that we are all sinners, that we have all sinned, that we have all done wrong, that the 
only way any of us are saved is by placing our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We believe two things. Number one, that all men are sinful. And number two, Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind. So, what is something that you should be able to observe from time to time in the life of your pastor? Are pastors perfect? No. No, that's not what we say we believe. What we say we believe is that we're all sinful, we're all working towards Christ, we're all working in our sanctification, but that all of us have some degree of sin in our life that we're still struggling with. So, is a pastor ever wrong? Have you ever seen him be wrong? Have you ever seen him admit that he was wrong? Have you ever seen him apologize for being wrong? Have you ever seen your pastor say that he was sorry? If at the heart of everything we believe, this gospel that we're all broken, that we're all sinful, that we all need Jesus, have you ever seen your pastor really in front of your eyes get down and say, I need Jesus? Or is the impression that you get from your pastor that he's pretty good just the way he is? Is the impression that you get from your pastor, he's pretty perfect. You see clear faults and failures in his life, but his response is, oh, you're just seeing those things the wrong way. You see, really, this is okay because of such and such wiggle room. You need to reinterpret the scriptures. Does he hold to Jesus or does he present himself as perfect and then try to justify his perfect life by twisting the scriptures? Which do you see? Point number one. Look hard at your pastor or your spiritual guide. Look for those things. Point number two, look at the people around you. This is where it gets a little bit more personal, but more important, particularly as we come to communion this morning. We say we believe that we're all sinners, that we need Jesus Christ, that we are all struggling on this road to salvation, that Christ saves us. Are you ever wrong? Those around you, do they ever make mistakes? Do they ever apologize for their faults or the wrongs that they've done? Do we really live out what we believe? Most importantly, let's look at the world around us. When we consider as a church what other churches we're going to partner with, when we consider as a church what our involvement is going to be in the broader Great Commission as we work with other believers, other Christians. They may say what they believe, and that's fine, but do they really live it out? Or do they embrace wiggle room? As we go through the Christian life, church, I think the best way for us to live is to really truly think of ourselves as blind. Christ condemns blind guides in this text. They think they're guiding people, but they're really blind. That should be a warning to all of us to take heed lest we think we see. Perhaps the most important thing that we should remember from this passage today is that we don't see as well as we think we do. And the best way to get through life is to find something that we can trust in. I have a friend who's blind. There are two things which he is never without. First, 
He has a cane that he walks around with. Through that cane, he is able to tell what the world around him looks like. He trusts in that cane. That's the first thing he has. The second thing he has, he has a seeing a guide dog. He puts his faith and his confidence in the guide dog to see what he cannot see. He holds it. The guide dog walks him along. He's got two instruments in his hand. He has his cane and he has his guide dog. We have Jesus Christ. And as we try to make our way through this life, rather than thinking we see, let's just acknowledge that we don't see as well as we ought to, but we have one who sees perfectly, and we can trust in him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time this morning, celebrating all the great things that you did this week through Kids Club, Father VBS. We thank you for all the opportunities that we had to talk about your son with these boys and girls. And we pray, Father, for their salvation. Lord, as your people gather here this morning to celebrate communion, to signal to each other and to you, the Lord above, their oneness with Christ. Father, I pray, God, that we would look closely at your word. I pray, God, that we would lean closely in to the scriptures. I pray, Father, that we would trust completely in what you say, knowing that you see perfectly. Help us to trust in you, the perfect guide. We love you, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're about to partake of communion. I just want you to take this moment to talk to the Lord about your walk with him. Boys and girls are going to begin making their way in to sit with you. This is not something for them to partake in unless they've been baptized, unless they've given their life to Christ. But it is something that we want them to observe. Come on in, boys and girls. Before we partake, we're going to sing a song, but I just want to give you a few minutes right now as your kids are coming in. I know it'll be a little chaotic. But just take this time and ask the Lord this question. Is there some area in my life in which I am totally blind? I think I see, but I'm not seeing it at all. Ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's some area of your life you need to surrender into his hands.